Welcome everybody to Black Coffee and Theology. so excited about uh, the conversation that you are about to partake in and the dialogue that you get to uh, hear. This conversation will be about uh, a disability theology in Black, right? And so uh, my guest and I will talk about uh, being Black and disabled, chronically pained, and um, in a theology, hopefully, that is more thoughtful in including uh, our social locations, plural. And so the special guests <laughs> are Esperanza Jean, public theologian, writer, storyteller. Mm, Esperanza is amazing. And then, you know, friend of the podcast, friend in life, friend in deed, uh, Rose J. Percy, writer, I want to say poet <laughs> involved in the theopoetics of it all uh, and a wonderful theologian and creative all around. And so with that said, sit back and relax and enjoy my conversation with Esperanza and Rose. Well, welcome, everyone back to the podcast. I am excited because I have two <laughs> wonderful people here. Uh, Rose J. Percy, <laughs> the, the brilliant, the wonderful, the soft Rose J. Percy, right. and the vibrant, <laughs> the, the equally wonderful uh, Esperanza. Hey, welcome ladies to the podcast. Thank you. Hey. Thanks for having me, Robert. Yes. Yeah. I, so let me say this uh, about both of you as we like start our conversation. I'll say something about you, then I'll, then I'll ask you a question about yourselves. Uh, I, Esperanza, I first encountered you at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, of course, on Twitter, because that's where I reside. And same. <laughs> You were spinning fire on a thread, <laughs> combating <laughs> something. And I was like, oh, who this? <laughs> who is this? Like, just, <laughs> you were lighting a thread up. Uh, and I was like, I must know this person. I must mm -hmm. uh, follow this person. And since then, I've experienced you as both reflective, uh, honest, uh, <laughs> Rawly honest and uh, sensitive too. You even display that, you know, so you have this full range of person that you display for me and I've never even met you in person. So thank you for that. Uh, and I know that has to be costly uh, to be all of those things uh, and be who you are. Um, and Rose, I 
listen uh we're gonna be friends for life uh, this, this, <laughs> you don't have a choice in this listen, <laughs> <So>. <laughs> you don't have a choice either <laughs> But I deeply have come to respect, uh, it always did, not just your mind, but your reach for clarity, your reach for clarity of the world, who people are, uh, yourself, and um, yeah, what you bring to the table in that, I appreciate that, uh, truly. Um, So thank you. Hmm. So... (laughs) (laughs) Esperanza the the first question I ask every guest is who are you and how do you show up in the world like what's important to you um that is such a hard question to answer Mm -hmm. uh because there are so many as I'm I mean maybe that's the case for for most people I feel like there are some people that are better at answering that question than I am. Um, I have so many different things within myself where I hold tension and complexity and layers. And so it's often difficult for me to summarize my person um, and answering that question, but I will do my best. And so uh, I'll begin with some context, like lived experience context. Born and raised in Detroit, Michigan, West Side specifically, for those who know what's up. Um, and my father is Black American. My mother is from the Dominican Republic. She is a, would be considered a 1.5er because she came when she was a teenager and then bounced back and forth a lot. Um, my family context really involved bouncing between worlds um, because my parents got divorced when I was very, very little, um, still pretty much a baby. And so I literally had one home where it might as well still be, we might as well been in Santo Domingo. Like my abuela, my grandmother's there taking care of me. My cousins are staying with us for like years at a time, um, things of that nature. And then at my dad's house, you know, complete opposite, you know, uh, and so just fully Black American through through culture, all those things. Um, so bouncing back and forth, I think that shaped me in a particular way um, where I actually got the benefit of not living in one home trying to consolidate two worlds. I got to more so fully experience both sides of myself in two completely different homes. And I think that might be one of the reasons why I identify so strongly with both sides of myself. Um, I'm not a mixed race person who, mixed race and mixed mixed ethnicity person who identifies more with one side or the other. And that's probably a big reason why. Um, Also went to a bilingual school, uh, shout out to Academia de las Americas that's in Southwestern Detroit. Not a lot of people know that we have a bilingual school in Detroit, public school, okay? Uh, okay. I was there for, mm, I was there till about fourth grade. Um, so a good, good chunk of time developmentally. That also has a lot to do with how I show up in the world. My, from kindergarten till I was nine years old, I was in a space where the majority of people, it was mm, 
mostly black and brown. And uh, that included my teachers. I, I, I would have to think when I first started having any white teachers because my wow. initial teachers were, were black and brown. Um, I think my kindergarten teacher, she was a black Colombian woman. She was my kindergarten teacher, yeah. So that has a lot to do with me. Um, and when it comes to the artistic and nerddom things of it all, um, I am a very uh, sociologically minded public theologian. My context always, my context of thought always brings it back to systems of people and how individuals and our beliefs and our ways of feeling about ourselves and each other and God are directly impacted and also directly impact how we move in these social systems. I care so much about the tangible. And I also care very deeply about how the intangible impacts the tangible, just that dance between the two. Um, I believe context is important in every single conversation, every single topic, which I've come to learn is a bit of a, a, a quirk of sociologists. Um, that was one of the things let me know like, oh, that's actually the direction I really need to go. Um, and yeah, so my uh, formal training background has been in theology. I got a um, bachelor's in theology at an HBCU, actually. So that also has a lot to do with my theological development context and faith context, as well as an English professional writing. I'm a writer, fiction and nonfiction. Um, actually working through my high fantasy novel manuscript right now. And I'm really excited about it. So good. Um, <laughs> And then I also attended um, Fuller Theological Seminary and studied uh, for a master's uh, MA in intercultural studies, um, going to an HBCU and then going to a white graduate school, let alone a white Christian graduate school. Mm, separate conversation. That's a different conversation that I would like to have, actually. <laughs> that's going to be a part two of this that's a separate conversation so also piece of my background and context and yes and I am here with you all having this lovely conversation mm, I love it I like to hear Rose uh friend of the podcast who are you and how do you show up oh it's a good one um <clears throat> I've been thinking a lot about this lately and I think the vibe that I want for my life is that like grandmother's living room where you know you can sit down and stay for a really long time you could have like tea and like cookies and just like kick it <laughs> I always feel like I don't know like rushed in especially in the city I'm in Boston right now um and there's always this like feeling of like everyone's got this urgent schedule and places to go, things to do. And so conversations often feel like if there's no point, we have in this conversation. And I kind of feel like there needs to be more to life than like finding the telos of all things. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So I, I don't know, resting and sitting and being with myself and others. It's probably like how I would want to show up and how I would want to be. Um, but yeah, like, as you said, I've been on this podcast before, so y'all know me. 
Yeah. <laughs> you are a favorite uh, of the podcast. You are are well requested uh, by Patreon Brief. and others. <laughs> fan, fan favorite. Fan yeah. favorite. Oh, truly, you are. <laughs> so, with that said, Blackness, theology, and disability is on the table for us to discuss. And props to Rose J. Percy, who had uh, this idea. And we have been trying to do this for many moons, but mm -hmm. Rose initially had this idea and it came out of the fruit of a conversation that we had together uh, sitting in Texas uh, last year and around the idea of vocation and how disability and blackness kind of intersects with that. Then on Twitter, a thread came forth, Esperanza joined in and here we are. <laughs> so I want to set this up by saying that uh, I have a pain that also uh, it informs how I come into this podcast, right? And it comes out of this rub of an ache to be seen, to uh, understand, to make sense of the world and of God. I am uh, a chronically ill uh, and pain person. And so a few more thoughts. I read. I have read disability theology uh, and gained some insights from there. I've read most recently, My Body is Not a Prayer Request, and admittedly loved a lot of parts of it. Um, but as people went up for it, I saw that and said that it was life-changing. I felt this pause within myself, knowing that it didn't speak to me as a black disabled man. And I didn't feel that it spoke to intersectionality in a way uh, that would point to a theology of wholeness. And so I have felt adrift in looking at a lot of disability theology because of the same reason. And so um, last thing Toni Morrison said, if there's a book that you want to read, but it hasn't been written yet, then you must write it. And in that same spirit, I wanted us to talk about uh, Blackness, uh, theology, and disability, and just bring some things to the table uh, in, a, in, in a generative way. Uh, so my first question is, what is your relationship uh, to disability, uh, both in your own life or people around you? Um, let's start with Esperanza. Okay. Um, I am also a chronically ill um, and disabled person. Um, it's taken a long time for me to fully acknowledge and embrace that reality and Same. identity. Have mercy, Jesus. Um, I, <clears throat> excuse me, I lived 30 years of my life undiagnosed in regards to a few things, um, but the main thing I, I want to name first is that when it comes to how, just how my brain works, I lived 30 years not knowing that I have ADHD. Um, that is a 
I mean, that is how my brain functions. It, it literally has to do with executive functioning, how we make decisions and move through the world. Um, and I also lived 30 years not knowing that I am autistic because of how much misinformation there is in the world about what autism even looks like and what it means. Um, and so I have both of those very uh, intricately layered uh, neurotypes floating in my head in terms of just how I see the world and how I think and how I approach things. Um, and then additionally, when it comes to how my body feels and functions and moves through the world, uh, I lived what I felt was a relatively healthy life until I got into a car accident um, in 2012, where I got a traumatic brain injury from that. And what I didn't know is that I was already living with a number of conditions that that accident was going to exacerbate. And completely, you know, there was no way for me to know. And so since 2012, in terms of how I move through the world, the level of thoughtfulness I have to have, the level of planning, the body scanning, the anticipation for certain things, the management piece for me did not fully kick in until 2012. And because I was unaware of the diagnoses that I was already walking around with, that that was just exacerbating, there was a lot of false hopes given to me about, oh, it is quote unquote, just a head injury. Imagine those words coming out of someone's face, but you know, I'm a black woman. So of course my pain and suffering isn't that, uh, isn't as real or isn't as notable, but had countless, you know, doctors and neurologists telling me like, oh, you'll recover in a month. You'll recover in three months. You'll recover in a year. You know, it's a closed head injury. Yes, there was some bleeding, but you'll be fine. And so that put false hope in me. They're like, oh, this is temporary. Like I'm down bad right now, but your girl's going to get back up and it's going to be okay. And so that added to stretching out the grieving process of no, my yeah. body is never going to be the same again. Mm, I'm going to come back to you because I have, I have follow-up questions because you're saying some things and I'm sorry about that grieving process. At first, I want to say that. Um, and I recognize some of my own story and yours. Um, so it's sad <laughs> to me. Um, Rose, what about your uh, relationship and in, in to disability, maybe in you or those around you? Uh... Yeah, I've taken some, some time to think about this question. And like, it is hard to claim that label for myself. Like, I think it is a process um, because you begin to realize like, it just adds another layer to your life or maybe it's always added a layer, but then like the acknowledging it, it's, it takes something else. But um, yeah, I have like this like hereditary anemia, anemic condition where like, I'll never not have anemia. Like I'll always be taking iron, um, always be tired and um, anxiety, uh, depression, um, possibly ADHD, the, the um, uh, assess assessment is still, you know, 
it's still pending. It's one of those things where it's like, do I want to see it on paper <laughs> or do I want to just validate my own experience by naming the traits that I see, um, knowing that I have also several siblings who also have it and we're all very similar. Oh, yeah. And um, in the moment, I'm trying to navigate like making healthcare appointments to figure out this mysterious pain that I've had for months um, that you know, has made it really hard for me to just like do the basic things of life. And it's hard to name, like when you have to say like, oh, I am in pain and this is difficult for me when like there's things that people expect you to do, um, places people expect you to be, and you don't have like a easy answer for them. You can't say, oh, it's this. It's like, here's my, here's my reason. Um, so I'm in the process of investigating what my reasons are. Um, but I do keep at least like my symptoms and things close to my chest <laughs> and, and things like that, because one of the things I find when navigating um, disability as an identity is that people start to feel like they can make choices for you. Um, they can, you they can decide <laughs> like, <laughs> you oh, you know, preach. you struggle with this. So I'm not going to invite you to do this. Like you struggle can't with see that. Me, but I'm nodding. Oh, it's, it's something. Um, but I remember this like moment of like profound relief that I felt when I finally like figured out that I had anxiety. Um, and like, I've had anxiety like my entire life. Um, but like with every different stage, like oh, there was something like, oh, it's probably this event that's happening. It's that event, it's this event. And it came to a point where like, I was finally in the space where I was like grounded enough, stable enough, everything was fine. And I still had anxiety that I was like, let's, let's figure out what's going on here. Um, but it was definitely a relief to, to know like one that like, it's not like, because it is in my head, doesn't make it any less real. Um, and to be able to acknowledge that like this, this pain is real and it's, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's where I'll rest for now. And, and to also say that like I'm in relationship with many people in my life, uh, close relationships with folks who are disabled and on a spectrum of, of um, levels of accepting that identity or, or knowing enough about disability justice to, um, you know, just like open and expand my mind in different ways. And then for those who don't, just like having experiences with them enlivens and opens up my mind constantly so what's in my cup what's in my cup now's the time of the podcast where i share with you what's in my cup and what's in my cup what's in my cup today i have an adult beverage some jesus juice um um yeah, so a little wine uh, to make the conversation go around as it was uh, in the evening when we recorded this conversation. So that's what's in my cup. I'm over here like exploding. There's just, oh, there's so much. The, the nobody cares piece, but specifically the portion where people get investigative so that they can decide for themselves the degree of validity they believe your disability holds given the scenario yeah. and what they want from you mm -hmm. and, and especially as a black and brown person especially, especially as a black and brown person like 
Oh my goodness. And honestly, it, unfortunately, capitalism, the, in my opinion, and from my studies, blatantly evil tenants of it are so insidious beyond where we just make money. It goes beyond only the spaces where it's blatant exchange. It also has impacted my friendships. It 100% has impacted my friendships. You know, it's one thing to be sick for a period of time for there to be a short-term crisis. It's another thing to be chronically ill. It's another thing to be ill for years. And we live in a society that because of how we're so dehumanized to just be, you know, conduits of production that there is absolutely a shame that is attached to not being able to produce at a certain level. 100%, I feel that. I feel that as a a child of an immigrant. I feel that as a black and brown person. I feel that as someone who my parents are first, on both sides of my family were the first to go to and uh, graduate from college. And, and, and get degrees, bachelor's degrees and master's degrees, you know, um, so there's a, there's a class shift implication in that too, where like where my family is coming from economically and trying to make it in this country. Um, there's absolutely a shame that is attached to that. And because there's so much shame attached to it, there's a lack of grief rituals. There's a lack of space mm, yeah. given to even process that you are ill and are going to be ill for an extensive period of time of your life. And that this is going to impact and does impact day in, day out, just being able to spend time with people, people making assumptions about what you can and can't make it to, or making assumptions about what your intentions are as to whether or not you even want to attend things and whether or not you even want to show up to places. I have so many relationships that have just fallen apart because for a combination of reasons, folks have made assumptions that I wasn't interested or they I just get labeled as unreliable or I'm not going to show up anyway. And it's like, my body is unreliable. Oh, you're speaking. Ooh, not my intention, not my yes. love, not my care, not my want for you. My body is unreliable. I have to deal with that unreliability on a day-to-day basis. Mm. And it doesn't work to our, any our benefit to disclose that in the workspace. Like it, it's all all arenas. Yeah. And it's, it's hard because right. There's visible and and invisible uh, disabilities, right. And what is so difficult is we already have how our bodies are perceived as black and brown people. They're perceived as monstrous. They're perceived at, you know, as, as bestial, not worthy of care already. Just when I walk into a room then adding a disability that you cannot see, that you don't know how it's affecting just being able to be present. I love that you said my body is unreliable. I'm I'm curious then how um, I see this thread of how this affects our theology, how it affects how we show up in spiritual spaces. And I'm curious as to both of your thoughts on that. The first thing I think is, um, what we're talking about affects how I can show up, for example, in a church. I, for years, uh, would push my body to the max to be able to be present and available, proud to be in the number on Sunday mornings. 
and you know playing piano playing doing all these things because i'm a servant in the army of the lord um what i realized when the pandemic shut down and everyone was saying i miss church i said baby i don't miss church um i realized and had my own morning ritual and realized that church spaces uh center around those who are able-bodied now and the questions that they were asking about how to have a theology that's accessible, how to have a praxis of care that reaches people, how to um, do community when people can't gather. I realized I had already been struggling with that for years, <laughs> I just, but y'all didn't care when I couldn't show up on Sunday and you didn't ask. Um, but when the pandemic shut things down, all of a sudden they were asking questions that disabled people could have, we could have walked you by the hand. Um, and the other, I have specific thoughts around resurrection and what we think of as perfection um, that I've had to question um, in my my Black pained body. So curious theological musings from you all um, related to this. Go ahead, Esperanza, you look good. <laughs> <sighs> they see me over here tapping my fingers and I'm moving around and listen, listen, listen. oh my goodness. Ex existing in this body that I have has forced me to be dissatisfied with the superficiality of so much theology in our churches around, specifically around suffering. I mean, the theology yes, and the comprehension the around suffering is like a kiddie pool out here. I said what I said. <laughs> Like, I know who my friends are. I know who my peoples are. I love all y'all. It's a kiddie pool out here. It's bad. And for the longest time, uh, well, no, I don't, I don't really want to go that direction. But yes, that, that is a huge piece of how I am ongoingly theologically shaped by my lived experience. And I think the added layers of the stacks, the stacks of suffering and pain of, yes, it is beautiful and glorious to be a black person. There is the suffering that we are attacked and oppressed by white people and also by other non-black people who are also non-white, you know? Um, and in addition Preach. to that, okay? <laughs> Okay, the, the anti-blackness is rampant, rampant, and too many people think that they're, uh, what's the word, uh, possibly immune or excused from that possibility existing in their being, and I, I need to make it very clear, it is in the water, in the air, if you're not intentionally detoxifying that from your body, yes, there are names that come to mind that I, I, I truly want to say, but I don't want to sully, I don't want to sully this episode with their presence, even in name. So we're going to leave it at that. But it's, it's wide and rampant enough that you can think of somebody that comes to your mind, maybe yourself, maybe you need to sit in the corner with yourself about it. Okay. Um, the anti-Blackness. And so it, and then on, in addition to that being a woman, I'm a Black woman. Um, and so enduring a lot of pain and suffering from black men, not just men of every race, 
yes, men of every race and also black men. So it, it hits on a different level. And then being a part of the professional theological space that is dominated, not only dominated by men, but for me, because of what my background is in, in terms of the spaces I got trained in, for me is dominated by black men. That is the majority of my pastoral and theological network, black men. And so the layers of what I'm enduring and the kiddie pool of, it's hard to even call it wisdom, let's say it thought, belief, as it relates to suffering and what does God have to do with that and what does that mean about the world and when it's ongoing and what does it mean to be in community with people who, um, especially when it comes to being Black, one of the primary ways that we cope and navigate is by working ourselves into, into the ground, is by working ourselves to the bone. You know, I have a whole slew of family members who are no longer here, who really died way too young because of the trauma and the distress they had to carry to survive. And I am literally physically not able to do that. Even if I wanted to buy in to the capitalist structure in that way, my body doesn't allow me that option. I have to rest or I will be gone. I will be out of here. Mm. You know? Yeah. So what, what does that mean when it comes to how I am esteemed or not esteemed socially in a space as well as professionally as a peer? I got that. Mm, thank you. What's I'm going to go to you, Rose, too. Who are you preaching? Uh, I'm, I want to say this part because you brought up the suffering and I don't Rose may go there, may not. So I want to say this. Um, I think that is part of what the, the, the pain that you're bringing up there is part of uh, my difficulty with hearing uh, preaching related to suffering related to the cross, related to giving it all, related to anything someone even talks about with the book of Job is a no for me. Um, it's a whole no, um, because what unintentionally what people bring to that Job story is they don't know that there are people whose very body is a witness of suffering. So um, yes, <laughs> poorly contextualized. and. T telling me to take up my cross when I am already feeling crucified every day. What do those verses mean to me um, as somebody? I, I didn't ask for this. I'm not willingly taking this up. Um, and I would also say this. No, I, I'll, I'll say this later. Rose, thoughts. <laughs> okay. Wow. Um. Mm. I'm just sitting with so much right now and you're going to have to repeat that question for me. <laughs> yeah, no, I love it. I love when somebody asked that with it being interviewed. So theological musings related to being black, your identity in, yeah, disability and theology. Yeah, I think one of my goals in life is to be whole and to continually to be more whole. Um, and to like explore new depths of my humanity and grow in my compassion for other humans. And so like in doing that, I think one of my biggest struggles 
with a lot of theology is how the conversations continue to create like silos and spaces where people can kind of like build their own thing in their own spot and kind of like have this echo chamber of like people who agree with them but like these people are talking to these people over here and these people are talking to those people over there but nobody's talking to these people and and like when you're in school trying to study all of this and you're just trying to and I feel like there's this understated goal of seminary to <laughs> for a lot of us and I, I chuckle but it's true like a lot of us go to seminary seeking answers um to the fragments that we that we bring to this to the space like like um Willie Jennings says in After Whiteness like we, we come seeking answers we come seeking um like like text and theories that we can lay over the injuries that we have um carried through life like whether that's rooted in our identities or experiences or traumas or oppressions like we come seeking those kinds of answers and when you come seeking answers like that and you enter a community and like all these different conversations seem to be happening happening in pieces like I think on some level like as, as you're trying to form your own identity and sense of self understanding all those things like you feel like you're in pieces <laughs> like you feel mm -hmm. like you're fragmented and whew, so that's like where I, I think I, I begin. And I think there's like a part of me, like I have these books we're, we're going to talk about later. We're going to get into the books. But like when I think about what I love um, about learning and the way that I learn is like I love making a bouquet with everything, like put a little bit of this, a little bit of that, like seeing the colors pop next to each other. And so when I want to have conversations about disability theology, like I can't see that outside of a conversation about um, justice for Black people and the like, you know, the ways in which we have been um, just like, uh, we, we have been committing, um, well, I won't say committing, the ways in which we have like in our bodies co-signed and agreed um, to work and overwork, um, but the ways in which we can also resist that. And there are just other, there's so many layers and things that I would love to bring together. And so I reject, <laughs> I don't know, I just reject the silos. I just reject all of it. Um, mm. And I love the term um, like the, like transdisciplinary, like forget interdisciplinary, like we are transgressing all the disciplines. And I think like, some part of the dream of at least like my dream for for this conversation about disability um like brings together like some of the things I think of when I think of like queer theology and queering theology is about queering boundaries and queering spaces where we think there are no gray areas and like admitting that there are lots and lots of them um and so yeah it's messy but like I think part of what keeps us from like progressing and making space for more voices is this hope that we can classify um, everything <laughs> and in classifying it, understand it and have command over it and then mastery over it and mastery will somehow lead to a better world. And it's like, no. And I think what disability theology, disability justice teaches us is that like, in order to embrace liberation for um, disabled folks is, is to sometimes give up on like frameworks that that claim that like the more you know 
the more command you have over something like there's like this humility with like understanding your body and the mystery of your body being open to it and understanding like yes as my body changes I'm learning new things in every season um the other thing I would name is like one of the things that is often missing from the conversation like always when it comes to disability and theology is that like we are all um like we can all be disabled at any time like it is a it is a yes. it's it's an identity uh that we all will be to some degree we, exactly um and so when we're having this conversation we're not talking about a people somewhere we're talking about the potential uh, reality of all people and so yeah i think yeah, those are those are things that are definitely important to me. Um, beyond that, <laughs> I'm just gonna co-sign everything Esperanza said. <laughs> exactly. Hey everyone, it's Faith Brooks here. I'm so excited to let you know that my new book, Remember Me Now, A Journey Back to Myself and a Love Letter to Black Women is now available wherever books are sold. So go ahead and get yourself a copy share it with a friend. And I am just so excited for you to get this book into your hands. And I can't wait for all of us to be able to talk about it soon. Black Coffee and Theology Pod is a production of Three Black Men, the podcast about theology, culture, and the world around us. Follow us on Twitter at Three Black Men. If you like the content that you are receiving here and want to receive more, whether that is in longer conversations, essays, devotions, and videos from either myself, Sam, or Trey, please sign up for for our Patreon at patreon.com slash three black men. Don't forget to like, rate, and review Black Coffee and Theology Pod as well as Three Black Men.